This episode is sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. Hello and welcome to the Big Law Business Podcast. I'm Josh Block. I produce videos and podcasts for Big Law Business. I'm joined by Casey Sullivan. What's up, Casey? Hey, Josh. I'm Casey Sullivan, and I report and edit stories for Big Law Business. In case you're joining us for the first time, this is the podcast where Casey and I discuss the most notable recent business of law stories, the stories that impact the largest U.S. law firms. We're recording this episode on March 11th, and today we're joined by Julie Tridman. Julie is a senior writer at The American Lawyer. Welcome, Julie. Thanks. Before we get to the business of law topics, we want to discuss with you, Julie, will you tell us how you came to cover the business of law? I graduated from journalism school and went to work for Human Rights Watch as a fellow and was looking for a journalism job that would involve some involvement with international human rights, the International Court of Justice. And a friend of mine was working at American Lawyer. That was um, 1994. I applied and was hired and worked for Steve Brill at that time. I guess you liked it. You're still covering the business law. Well, I think lawyers are really interesting people. And the business of law, at least when I started covering it, was fairly opaque. And it was a very big industry that wasn't being covered and it was exciting to be sort of breaking new ground on covering their finances. What was it like working for Steve Brill at The American Lawyer? I didn't see very much of Steve Brill as a junior reporter, even though I could see him in the corner office with his cigars and his suspenders. The only time I personally had contact with him was in the final draft of my feature stories when he would occasionally call an unlucky reporter in to criticize and berate. (laughs) And I remember that he used a red pen and that on the side of one of my first drafts, he wrote, is English your second language? He was famous for getting us to work hard. And that was that was one of the things that I liked about it was that journalism was really valued. And at the time, we couldn't get AMLA 100 financial information very easily at all. And there were firms where sometimes we had to call 50 or 60 partners and we'd wait till five o'clock when the secretaries went home and we'd call them until we found out how much the firm had earned. I know that like Casey, you've received attention for your coverage of the class of Dewey and LaBeouf and you've won other honors for your work. Is there, are there an articles or series that you found most rewarding in your coverage of business law? I think that there have been many stories that I've enjoyed writing and I'm proud of, but I, I really liked writing uh, a cover story a couple of years ago about how there are so appallingly few black lawyers in big law, especially black equity partners. And it's still it, it isn't getting better. Every time I look at the statistics, I'm amazed. So moving on to the topics we wanted to talk about with you, let's start with k Gates. They are one of the largest U.S. law firms. They were founded in 1883. Last year, k Gates ranked 21st in gross revenue in the American lawyers' rankings. At that time, they had 1,952 lawyers and 252 equity partners. They are a global firm with 44 offices. Their headquarters are in Pittsburgh. And of course, the Gates in KL Gates is William Gates Sr., the father of the richest person in the world, the founder of Microsoft, Bill Gates. What can you tell me about this firm? Who are their clients? What are their strongest practice areas? So traditionally, KL Gates um, has been a Pittsburgh firm, a regional firm that 
that services largely the middle market. And over time, since uh, Peter Kalis took over as chair back in 1997, it's expanded through a number of mergers, including um, one in Australia called Middleton's, to become uh, an international law firm. It's a full-service law firm, so they have a range of different practice areas in litigation, intellectual property, mergers and acquisitions, but basically isn't known for taking on kind of like the big bet the company cases that, you know, elite law firms take on like Paul Weiss and Gibson Dunn, cases that you see that really grab headlines. Ironically, even though the Gates name was something that mattered a lot to Pete Kalis when he um, negotiated that merger, Microsoft, I think in a couple years ago, dumped the firm as its impaneled counsel. And, and I think just in the past year, the firm ordered the closure of the Spokane office. Since last year's AMLA rankings, there have been reports of many departures and you both have been covering them. What were the first rumblings that something more than typical has been going on at K&L Gates? Normally, we we see a lot of partners leave law firms at the beginning of the year, but then it tapers off because most partners are fully paid by the end of the year, early in the next year, and they leave before they have a chance to bill a lot of hours, which they inevitably lose. But in late February, or the third week of February, we started to see a lot of departures from K&L Gates more than we had seen before, and most particularly three large groups. The first group went to Morgan Lewis in Chicago, a group of IP patent lawyers led by Michael Abernathy. The second group was another group uh, in Chicago that went to Stradley Ronan. And a a third group just uh, a week or two later uh, went to Mayor Brown, a very large group, ultimately of more than two dozen partners. Back up even further, I remember last year there was coverage, even in the summer, I think, that over a course of seven months, I think 90 partners left. Is this a continuation of that? It definitely does not look like it's part of the same trend. Last year, the chairman, Pete Kalis, talked to us about how he was trimming the ranks of non-equity partners or de-equitizing partners, that these were underperformers. It's a firm that's had either flat or down years in the past five years. And we saw no, no reason to doubt that he was talking about about what was actually happening. But this year, these were people who were well-known in the market who were going, for the most part, to really good firms and who have a reputation for being big business generators. I also think that, you know, one one notable difference from the first round as opposed to this year's round is Pete Kalis's approach to handling the media and the comments that he makes in different stories. Last year, he came out really strong and he said that, you know, for the overwhelming majority of partners who are leaving were, were non-equity. And this year, it took him a number of days to come out to speak with the media. He just recently spoke with Law360. And it's a much more diplomatic approach. He, uh, and I think that I read him saying things like, you know, we wish all of the partners well, and I'm sure that they had their own reasons for going off to different places. And it just seems like a much more toned down, less aggressive approach on his part. When something like that happens, we just start calling current and former partners like crazy. And they they were telling us that they've been unhappy for a long time and that they don't like the management direction. Many of them seem particularly angry at Chairman Pete Kalis, saying that he was autocratic, that he didn't listen to their concerns. And this all seemed reasonable until one of them mentioned that the firm had just won a very large contingency fee. So there was some good news for K&L Gates. 
tell me about that settlement and the fee? Well, apparently on around February 23, uh, Mr. Kayla sent an email to all partners saying that in light of a $750 million patent infringement settlement that the firm had struck for its client, Carnegie Mellon University, that the firm would receive $210 million as a contingency fee award. And nonetheless, two days later, that was when the first of those three large groups left. So they were leaving a large amount of money on the table, presumably. And that $210 million is only $55 million shy of their entire profit from 2015. So we have some departures from last year that look like mostly non-equity people. Then we have unconnected. We start to see partners leaving this year. And that's even though there is a big fee coming in that they would be rewarded financially for. So the reason that they're pointing to for their departure is... I think it really goes back to uh, the place where KNL Gates is in the uh, shark tank of law firms. They're a, a large firm with many offices, a very high overhead, both in real estate, and um, they have a huge tier of non-equity partners that they have to pay, as well as associates and counsel. In fact, I think it's almost three to one um, non-equity income partners to equity partners, according to American lawyers' definition of what an equity partner is. And and they also have, have been unlucky in the timing of some of their recent deals. They struck a deal with Middleton's in Australia. To two, it was a two 283 lawyer firm and apparently absorbed some couple score million dollars of liabilities there. Uh, they extended year year or so guarantees to the top rainmakers there. And then as soon as that year was up, most of those people left. So out of the 283 in Australia, two or three years ago, there's only 204 now. And the same is true for some of their earlier mergers. And they merged with Bell Boyd in 2009, a big Chicago firm out of the 250 people in that group. There's 84 now. And Preston Gates, going way back, they've also lost a lot of people. I guess just one point that might be worth noting is the comments that are being made from former KNL Gates partners around kind of the administration of KNL Gates has sort of surfaced as conversation around, uh, you know, kind of a broader conversation around, you know, how to manage a firm as large as KNL Gates, you know, whether you should really just be made up of practicing attorneys or whether you should be sort of managed by non-lawyer or lawyers who don't practice a whole lot managing rainmakers with books of business. Uh, one comment that was made by um, the IP partner who joined Morgan Lewis, Michael Albernathy, was, you know, he pointed to the fact that Jamie McKeon and Steve Wall, who run Morgan Lewis, they're, they have active practices. And, you know, usually when one partner leaves a firm and joins another, the positive comments that they make about the firm that they're joining sheds light on the firm that they left. And based on other reports that I've seen out there, there does seem to sort of be frustration around, um, you know, I've seen words used like a dictatorship or, you know, there's sort of a top-down um, management structure within KNL Gates that it's not unique to KNL Gates. Other firms have this. I think that 
Greenberg Traurig, for instance, is sort of known as having a corporate management type approach. But you know, is that the best way to run a global law firm in today's market? There are two things that I've read in both your reporting and in the reports of others. And that's the notion that a lot of people are taking issue with this notion of some sort of a dictatorship or an autocracy, but then also pointing to a management structure that has 75 people on the management committee. How does that play into what's going on here? This is a little bit difficult because I think it's not clear to me who all is on the 75 member management committee, but people who left who have a bone to pick, obviously, because they left, say that it's a rubber stamp and that the people who spend a lot of time managing practice groups are getting paid well to be in management and are interested in maintaining their position and are not representing the interests of the partners at large. And one of the things that I heard a lot of, which a lot of firms in this category are also facing, is that when you have a shrinking pool of money to share between partners, you have to decide between whether you're going to pay your biggest producers more so that they don't leave for the competition or whether you're going to pay your up and coming young partners who you want to keep. And the group that left for Mayor Brown that are um, an elite team of partners who deal with serving banks who are facing probes by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is one of the newest federal agencies, and it's really flexing its muscles. And there aren't that many folks who do that kind of work. And the two or three folks who headed that up were among the highest paid partners at K&L Gates, but not the highest. The firm has been hiring top priced laterals in the past year. And I heard from people who are in touch with that group closely that they were worried that some of their junior partners who were on the up and up in that team weren't getting paid enough and were about to leave for other firms. So in the interest of keeping the team together, it made sense for them to jump to a firm where the RPL, the revenue per lawyer and the profits per partner are double what they're, what they're able to get at k Gates. And the losses of partners have even included someone who was viewed as a possible future chair of the firm? That's what I was told. Lawrence Platt, who uh, had been a member of the management committee and had headed up and founded this practice area, um, but was not currently in management, uh, that he, he was very well regarded. People thought he was a straight shooter and he had been a contender in people's minds for Kalis's job. And Kalis is approaching the end of his his sixth term as chair and managing partner, and he's now 65 or so. So the question becomes in 2017 in February, who was going to succeed him? And I don't know if there's any clue about that right now. So he's been chair since 1997. Tell me about him. He was raised in Wheeling, West Virginia, like the former chair of Oric, Ralph Baxter, and the former chair of Reed Smith, Gregory Jordan. And he ultimately became a Rhodes Scholar. And when he was hired to the firm in 1981, he made partner in four years, which is pretty unheard of. And I think American Lawyer even had a feature on this rising star a few months before he made partner. And then in 1997, he became chairman. And since then, he struck nine merger deals with other firms. He would probably call them acquisitions, not mergers, because they were with smaller firms, and took the firm from a regional firm to a global one, and one that has 44 offices, albeit down from its high of 46 offices a few years ago. 
Well, I, I guess I've just been struck by how hands-on he is uh, with messaging and, and with management. And he's known in the legal industry at other firms for being very outspoken about the law firm business model. Um, he's you know made com- public comments about the Varine structure, which is where law firms essentially merge but maintain separate profit centers and really sort of speaking out against that model and, and takes a lot of pride in the fact that uh, K&L Gates has been put together through true mergers in that sense of the word. Of the word. In 2012, when Law360, I believe, first reported on this uh, partner exodus in Chicago, led by a group that went to Shepard Mullen, I think the words that they used were, partners are fleeing at an alarming rate or something like that. And he came out with this really long, detailed memo. I mean, he basically came out and slammed Law360 and then came out with really strong statements about the firm's own finances, saying that they had no debt and that there was absolutely nothing wrong and that he wouldn't participate in a Dewey-esque charade, were the direct quotes. Even more, he he was nominated and became an innovator, a legal innovator in one of our issues recently because of his supposed dedication to transparency. He's one of the first, maybe the first uh, law firm chairman to release audited financials of the firm's books, which we love. How many firms do that? I would say most don't. And we should say he was. he's also been um, a preacher for the importance of having no debt or reducing debt. And so the firm has an extremely high capital contribution. So partners who are, when they become equity partners, put in a certain amount, but ultimately over the years, it ultimately is 60% of their earnings is held in a capital account, which covers the firm's expenses year to year. And they've grown their firm entirely on their own capital account. And you would think that that really creates a loyalty even among former firm partners, you know, people that we talk to, you know, that may have an interest in speaking high, <laughs> speaking highly of KNL and, and maybe sort of spinning things in a way that, you know, making positive public comments about KNL Gates since their capital is still tied up in the firm. How else does it bolster them? In a way, does it make them Dewey proof or, you know, what is that? The high contribution doesn't mean they can't. You no. Know. And in fact, the high contribution combined with the fact that the firm has to give back the capital when partners leave by the following September or late August of the year following their departure means that this coming year, the firm is going to be on the hook for, I estimate, 40 or $50 million in capital returns. So that's that's what it costs the firm on the other side. So on the way up, it's great. But on the way down, it's not so great. It's a great playbook for a recession-era firm when being safe and being not the not Dewey was a great strategy for recruiting laterals. But maybe right now, you know, we're, we're seeing a little more growth on some of the top tier firms. You, they had a record year for deals. Maybe it's not such a great play when your competitors, Reed Smith, for instance, is now double or started out at the same level of profitability and is now double or triple K&L Gates. Same with uh, other firms that started in the Midwest. We recently invited Kalis to do a video interview with us and, and he declined. And I know in the past, both of you have spoken to him. You know, what 
do we know about his take on what's happening now with these departures? He has come out and he has addressed comments made by former partners about you know, the firm's leadership. He isn't of the view that sort of a top-down approach is problematic. He said that if you had everyone agreeing with each other, then nothing would get done, I think was sort of the overall message of, of his quote. Um, he said he noted that the firm had 900 partners made up of both equity and non-equity partners. 450 of them are, are uh, owners of the business. And so he called it a recipe for stagnation if there was sort of this whole uh, culture around consensus. He also said to Law360 that partners will leave for more money. That's true of every firm right now, but especially true for K&L Gates, where there's not a, a ton of money in the pie. This is a year when, even though they posted a 5.3% increase in profits per equity partner, they still are below a million per partner in profitability, whereas many of their competitors are in the one and a half million category. One of the things that you keep seeing in the in articles about this, either on Kalis's side or on the side of the partners, is is we hear uh, the C word, big laws C word, culture. So I'm just wondering what your reactions are when you hear this blamed on culture. It's like people use that word all the time and, you know, you kind of roll your eyes after a while and you hear the importance of culture at different law conferences and you hear it from law firm leaders. But at the end of the day, I feel like that is such a huge part of what ends up determining if, you know, a partner stays or goes or, or if a firm is stable or unstable. Um, at the end of the day, decisions are made based on, well, money, but also how well you get along with your partners and whether you feel like you're invested in the place where you work. And a lot of the partners that I speak with who end up leaving a firm, um, you know, there's there's a lot of frustration that I hear about management and how they feel like they haven't, you know, they made certain business decisions that they didn't agree with. A number of people have said to me that he does exert a great deal of pressure um, and it, it's maybe internalized. For instance, when they were asked to vote on a, a very expensive lateral uh, that the firm subsequently hired, people were voting yes on it, apparently, because P. Kalis wanted it. I feel like it's kind of like a recurring theme that we hear at big law firms generally that face partner departures. Like, you know, you heard it at Bingham McCutcheon, you heard it at Dewey and LaBeouf, you heard it at Howery. There's a common recurring storyline about partners who are upset with the chair and the people around the chair that they sort of view as being privileged and making decisions that they don't necessarily agree with. And, and because they're uh, lower ranking in the hierarchy, they sort of feel like they can do be better elsewhere and, and that another place might value them more. So in what we're seeing now at K&L Gates, in the experience that you both have had in covering other firms, is this a similar path to anything you've seen prior? I don't see this as being a Dewey scenario or even even though it followed a similar growth pattern to Bingham McCutcheon, I don't see it as be following Bingham McCutcheon's path. The fact is the firm has no debt. It still has only a small percentage of partners leaving, even though they're partners of substance this year. And the fact is people say they don't expect that many people to leave this year because of that $210 million contingency fee. Because if you're going to get 
at least one and a half times your payday, why would you leave? I think next year will really be an interesting year to see. I agree totally. I mean, if you look at the number of partners that are at the firm and the amount that have left, it's too soon to sort of make any kind of um, determination about what direction the firm might head in the future. When you guys write these stories, you often get quotes and, and people don't want to be on the record. And what happens going back and forth as you as you write, report the story out? In the case of Pete Kalis and KNL Gates, what happened was after the Law 360 story that had a several unnamed anonymous former partners quoted in it, Mr. Kalis said he wouldn't respond to my email unless I identified he wouldn't respond to my questions unless I identified my sources, and he expected I would do that. And my response to him was and is that these partners have everything to lose by being identified because 60% of their last year's earnings are still held by the firm as, as well as anything they've earned in the first quarter of this year. And it's um, unreasonable to expect that they're going to allow themselves to be quoted on the record. The second thing is that as a reporter, I can find out the same information from people in different offices who don't know each other. And if I'm hearing the same information from three people, then I tend to believe that it's true. And I don't think that their name adds anything to the story. So what do you typically need to have before you feel that comfortable? If it's a very uh, hot piece of information, I like to have three people say the same thing. What next steps do we know will happen with K&L Gates? Well, we know that partners are less likely to leave going forward because of the large contingency fee that was received by the firm. And also the fact is that partners need to stay at the firm until the end of February to get their last year's compensation. So at this point, they're fully compensated and now they see there's a big pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. The real question will be early next year when Pete Kalis is up for reappointment by the management committee and whether without a hefty contingency fee, whether he's going to still have the support that he had several years ago. That is all for this episode. For more, check out our website, biglawbusiness.com. Give us feedback on the podcast there or write to us. Our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. Thanks to Julie Tridman for joining us. Follow her on Twitter at Julie Tridman. Follow Big Law Business on Twitter at Big Law Biz. Follow me on Twitter at Josh Block NYC. Follow Casey on Twitter at Casey underscore Big Law. Big Law Business is a production of Bloomberg BNA's cross-platform businesses. The podcast is produced and edited by me, Casey and Gabe Friedman write for and edit our website. Blake Edwards is our correspondent. Technical and website design is handled by Philip Ramsey and Paige Connor. Cassie Whiteside heads up commercial strategy. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor of our podcast or our website, please email her at cwhiteside at bna.com. And Scott Mazarski oversees the whole big law business operation. I'll try that This American Life thing one more time. Just before we recorded today, Scott left a message on my voicemail telling me, On the way up, it's great. But on the way down, it's not so great. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it.